You're listening to Playtime, a podcast for the arts. I'm W.C. Turk. A History of Light for the Artist, Part 6. The Conquest of Alexander and the Founding of Alexandria. At 16, Alexander's formal education ended as he was called home to govern while his father was away at war, ostensibly to liberate Greeks suffering under Achaemenid or Persian rule. With Philip away, the Macedon's Thracian vassals revolted. Alexander quickly put down the revolt and founded a Greek colony, which he named creatively Alexandropolis. Alexandropolis really isn't of any significance here, except that it sort of begins a pattern. The boy seemed to have a penchant for putting his name on things like cities. In 336 BC, Alexander's father was assassinated, beginning a cycle of bloody consolidation of power and warfare. Heir to his father's legacy, Alexander undertook a policy of expansion that would see him across the Middle East and the Indian subcontinent. Alexander's historic defeat of the Persians at Isis on November 5th, 333 BC is well documented. It is important to our story that it left Alexander in control of the Levant in Syria. Brutal campaigns against Persian strongholds at Tyre and the hill fort at Gaza left the road to Egypt open to Alexander's army. Arriving at the Nile River, Alexander would immediately recognize the strategic and economic implications of a coastal fort in its deep water harbor. That coastal fort would prove a pivotal place in the course of human knowledge. The Nile River Delta forms the easternmost boundary of a long open bay. A dozen or so miles to the west lay several small islands and the strategic port towns of Canopus and Horalcyon, all set along the marshy coast. Just past Canopus and Horalcyon lay the harbor town and Egypt garrison at Rakotis on a tributary of the Nile and sporting a harbor conducive to large ships. Rakotis was strategically located to protect approaches to the Egyptian hinterland against Western invaders. Archaeologists have evidence of a thriving port before Alexander arrived. It is no wonder that Alexander immediately seized upon the importance of the town. He renamed it, curiously, Alexandria and commissioned the great architect Denocrates of Rhodes to construct his new city. Quickly, the new colony attracted some of the greatest intellects in the Mediterranean, among them the so-called founder of geometry, the mathematician Euclid, 323 to 286 BC. Though it should be pointed out that the work of Euclid, like Pythagoras, circa 570 to circa 495 BC before him might have been derivative of the work of Babylonian mathematicians at least a thousand years earlier. In 1894, a small circular tablet was excavated from a site near modern-day Baghdad. It would lay all but forgotten for more than a century in the Istanbul Museum until it was rediscovered in 2018 by Dr. Daniel Mansfield from the University of South Wales, Sydney. Known by its archival name, SI-427, the palm-sized tablet dates between 1900 and 1600 BC. It is less a piece describing geometrical theories as one of those accounting tablets from which writing and literature arose. The piece appears to portray property lines and boundaries. 
that geometric concepts were already established and employed this way is notable. Little is known about Euclid's life directly. What we do know comes from mostly his writings and research. Euclid may have helped organize the museum or museum, the precursor to the Great Library of Alexandria. The Great Library is essential as it represents the first true institution drawing upon and collecting knowledge from the known world. The Great Library at Alexandria stands as a monumental leap forward in the illumination of human intellect. The Byzantine poet Johannes Tsetzes, writing in Constantinople in the 12th century, ascribes the Museum during the reign of Ptolemy I Soter circa 367 BC to circa 283 BC. Works from around the known world were translated and kept at the museum. As many as a thousand or more scholars resided and collaborated there, one of them perhaps independently or perhaps as part of Alexandria's community of intellectuals would soon fundamentally upend humanity's exalted place at the center of the universe. His name, his name was Aristarchus. Aristarchus of Samos, circa 310 to circa 230 BC, the mathematician and astronomer was just 13 years younger than Euclid. Aristarchus is notable as the first astronomer and mathematician to describe the sun, our primary source of illumination and life, as the center of the universe rather than the earth. Moreover, he correctly described the relative distance of observable planets from the sun and believed though could not prove that the stars were very distant suns in their own right. His hypotheses for a helio or sun-centric universe would be revived almost 2,000 years later by the Polish astronomer Nicholas Copernicus and by Galileo Galilei a century later with his telescope. Remember that because Galileo would describe something even more profound in our quest to understand light and the photon. The Greeks were obsessed not only with mathematics and geometry, but also with the processes involved in observation and equations. From the available evidence, it is that attention to meticulous scientific methodology that distinguishes Greek thinkers from their Babylonian forebearers. Undoubtedly, Aristarchus and Euclid would have met and likely traded ideas at the Museum at Alexandria. Euclid's seminal work, Elements, was groundbreaking and would have been well known to contemporaries. Euclid's work informed the younger Aristarchus, just as it would inform scientific minds for the next 2300 years, including Sir Isaac Newton, Johannes Kepler, Nicholas Copernicus, Galileo, Edwin Hubble, Albert Einstein, and Carl Sagan, among many, many others. Even more to our story, it would prove fundamental to the discovery and use by artists in rendering perspective. Elements was probably, at least in part, a compendium of Euclid's work, as well as the work of Proculus, Hippocrates, and Pythagoras before him. Elements' genius was that it was laid out with logical precision. Euclid likely wrote elements on scrolls of papyrus or linen. Why this is important is that, as Marshall McLuhan wrote in his 1964 Extensions of Man, that the medium is the message. We might amend that by saying that the message only lasts as long as the medium. What other insights and radiant knowledge existed in the great library of Alexandria were lost to the flames of history and human ignorance. 
History is not defined by kings or wars or assumptions of empires, but on the process of competing, diverging, and intersecting lines of innovation, accident, and inspiration. That is the process. Stone tablets are great for writing until one makes a mistake, has to carry it, share it, or hang it on a wall. They are hell to copy, and woe to the careless writer who drops a precious, one-of-a-kind tablet. There are no first drafts with clay tablets. Even more, tablets represent a choke point for information. One must be absolutely certain which information does or does not merit a spot on a stone or clay tablet. That can be cruelly subjective in the pursuit of democracy and proliferation of knowledge. The nascent system of accounting, first seen at Dolni Vestinitsi, and in full practice by the Sumerians and Babylonians, did offer one interesting development in the evolution of human culture. It established and codified individual ownership that was important to organizing and resolving conflicts in ever-growing communities. It also acknowledged the individual, specifically recognizing ownership begins a socio-economic and socio-political definition of the individual. It is the belief of this author that the awakening acknowledgement of individual sovereignty and ownership coincides with the universal rendering of human faces. For all of humanity's previous artistic history, but for the handprints in cave art, the individual was not present in art. Figures were almost exclusively faceless. Certainly, there were no mirrors for self-portraits, but portraits of others are notably absent. Art, it seems, was a communal expression rather than an individual one. In 2009, Georgian archaeologists searching for ancient pollen grains in the mammoth Jujuana cave stumbled upon a series of interwoven flax fibers. These fibers were dyed black, gray, turquoise, and pink. Astonishingly, they dated to around 30,000 BC. Reference Science, 11 September 2009, Volume 325. It is obvious that humanity already possessed an affinity for color. Those rainbow colors, including red ochre, describe a fundamentally changed vision of monotone cavemen clad in furs and hides. That penchant and ability to produce a wide array of colors and hues underscores the brilliance of line drawings on cave walls. These were not mistakes or experiments in primitive art, but the work of people already pushing the frontiers not only of art, but of technology and more importantly, culture. But who was responsible for these woven and dyed fibers? We can extrapolate from traditional contemporary cultures or from enslaved peoples that women and children learning skills in a practical education undertake the arduous task of weaving as well as rope and string making. They sing and tell stories to endure arduous and strenuous tasks. These arts maintain community and cultural connections, as well as undermining stress and fatigue on physical and psychological levels. Was it here, gathering for communal tasks, including long hours and days on the hunt that song and storytelling began? Blues and gospel music has as much to do with the subversive communal language of the oppressed as it does with hard and repetitive labor. They each derived from storytelling traditions. Does that bring us closer to the honeybee dance or other communicative behaviors in the animal world? 
it adds a tempting assumption of the possibility of an anthropic universe. That is, the universe created conscious life which would evolve to assign purpose and meaning to itself. It is an intriguing, if egotistical, idea. Homo erectus and the Neanderthal overlap in the archaeological record between about 120,000 and 108,000 years ago. Just as the Neanderthals outcompeted and outlasted Homo erectus, Homo sapiens was gradually replacing and interbreeding with a slowly disappearing homogeneous Neanderthal population. Between 35,000 and 30,000 years ago, Neanderthals, as a separate species, became virtually and functionally extinct. Both Neanderthals and Homo erectus showed evidence of artistic inclinations and degrees of abstractions, but not enough, apparently, to drive their physical evolution, at least not to the extent of their cousins, Homo sapiens. Homo erectus was anatomically incapable of Homo sapiens-level speech. Was it akin, however, to chimpanzee speech, but with greater complexity, or more like a hybrid between human and chimpanzee speech, with nominal, but sometimes specific, albeit rudimentary, verbiage, perhaps a mix of simple sounds and words. But they did make tools, used fire, and utilized clothing, ostensibly sewing together skins and furs. They were closer to us than they were to chimpanzees, much closer. Closer still, the Neanderthal created cave paintings, crafted bone flutes, and ritually prepared their dead. In 2009, Denmark researcher Bent Sorensen, writing in the Journal of Archaeological Science, described how European Neanderthals during the Amian interglacial, between 130,000 and 120,000 years ago, wore fitted clothing made of furs and rawhide. This vision supplanted the myth of the rough-hewn caveman. Neanderthals fashioned hardy footwear, caps, and gloves. They understood rudimentary counting, evidenced by the discovery of notches on a piece of bone. Within a few thousand years, or around 30,000 years ago, Homo sapiens would become the sole hominid heir to the planet. Homo sapiens did more than fashion clothing from furs and hides. It invented cloth, primarily linen. The discovery in the rugged foothills of the Caucasus Mountains reveals the long relationship between mankind and linen. Linen would become indispensable to artists and writers alike many, many thousands of years later. But those nascent footsteps, so to speak, were there, and they were accelerating apace as culture became the dominant force in human evolution. By now, humanity had developed, at least rudimentarily, the use of inks and dyes, those relationships became interwoven with art and our exploration of the realities and relevance of light to our species. While our first evidence of ink for writing dates to a terribly recent 1500 BC, arising more or less simultaneously in China and Egypt, it certainly dates back much, much earlier. It was necessary first to invent something to write on. Together with linen, papyrus, and paper, ink revolutionized not only the recording of information, but the democracy of information. The proliferation and availability of the written word would lurk the entire species forward, rather than a select or privileged few. Even more, it heralded and accelerated the illumination of human knowledge. The ancient Egyptians used linen extensively as clothing and for mummification of their dead as well. 
but linen is difficult and expensive to produce. Flax fibers are notorious for their lack of elasticity. The Greeks loved their scrolls, but they were cumbersome. The Romans solved that and revolutionized the written word forever with the invention of the codex, which bound separate pages from a central spine. It was the precursor to what we know today as the book. It was the leap forward from scrolls and light years from clay tablets, though from tablet to codex was perhaps a matter of around a thousand years. Codex in Latin literally means piece of wood, which may have described pages pressed between a front and back cover of wood attached to a central wooden spire, or simply the appearance of a piece of wood. The Roman Emperor Julius Caesar, July 12, 100 BC to March 15, 44 BC, may have been the first to use the Codex. Either way, the Roman Codex was a vast improvement over the Greek and Egyptian scrolls in that they could hold far more information, and that information could be retrieved and shared more readily. The first actual reference to the Codex is by the 1st century AD Roman poet March about 41 AD to about 103 AD, describing some form of vellum or animal skin, paper or parchment, which obviously was already known and in use. But these were expensive to produce until a Chinese courtier named Tsai Lun innovated the mass production of paper for the very first time. The invention of paper as we know it using plant and hemp fibers is credited to Tsai Lun from Lei Yang in China around 105 AD. The date corresponds roughly to the first direct trade contacts between China and Rome, though indirect trade between Rome and India and India and China were already well established for centuries. By the reign of Augustus, 23 September, 63 BC to 19 August, AD 14, more than 100 Roman ships were arriving in India each year. Indian intellectuals and scientists were known in Alexandria. The world and the growth of culture, and by extension evolution, from prehistory until modern times has always depended on the global trade in goods and ideas. Tsailun's innovation allowed for paper's mass production and more its affordability. That last quality, perhaps more than anything else, would become essential to the arts and sciences, to the proliferation of formal education and in encouraging a blossoming of literature and visual art across every stratum of society. It would make knowledge and information available to everyone, regardless of class or rank or social position. It would become the ultimate weapon for revolutionaries and the greatest threat to tyrants and oppressors. As a capital investment by publishers and authors such as the church, books and the paper that they were printed on demanded a market, which in turn helped incentivize literacy. It would also make successful revolutions possible and more common. The democratization of information was always a direct threat to the royal order, but it was as unstoppable as a tidal wave. In retrospect, making paper is a simple process. Kits are now sold, which allow an individual to make a sheet of paper in a matter of minutes. Like the invention of the wheel and loom, the discovery of rice or beer or bread, these were unprecedented, transformative, and incredible leaps in technological innovation. Quote, Writings and inscriptions were generally made on tablets of bamboo or on pieces of silk called chi. But silk 
Being costly and bamboo heavy, they were not convenient to use. Tsailun then initiated the idea of paper making from the bark of trees, remnants of hemp, rags of cloth, and fishing nets. He submitted the process to the emperor in the first year of Yuan Sang and received praise for his ability. That from the 1985 publication, Science and Civilization in China, Volume 5, Chemistry and Chemical Technology, Part 1, Paper and Printing, Cambridge University Press. All these tiny yet profound revolutions with nary a shot fired or a sword brandished in anger. All the while, innovations in glass, optics, and geometry continued. Recall that Aristarchus at Alexandria was building upon the mathematical and logical discipline of Euclid. Observing the angles of light reflected from the moon and assuming the sun's position was fixed at the center of the universe, Aristarchus mathematically deduced that the sun was at least 20 times farther from the earth as the moon. We now know that he was a few orders of magnitude off and short by about 85 million miles. But Aristarchus gets, gets points for his effort. For the first time though, the universe had scale and size and depth. That's important for our discussion on perspective. Aristarchus was likely leaning on the work of Menachmus, a friend of Plato, who worked with conic sections. Essentially, the study of three-dimensional geometric shapes, which would inform everything from optics to, yes, perspective. Cones were of a particular interest to Euclid. Imbued within their work was the nascent science of parabolas, rudimentary to the lens and telescope. All of that is also important to the discovery of three-dimensional thought and perspective. But again, we will come to that in due time. Meanwhile, Archimedes, circa 287 to circa 212 BC, in the quadrature of the parabola, laid the foundation for Galileo's work with parabolic trajectories. We are interested in the focal point of a parabola. Determining the focal point, F is roughly the diameter D divided by C, the depth of the parabola. The focal point is where Galileo would find the clearest and best views of the heavens some 18 centuries later. Remember this illustration. We will return to it shortly when we explore the discovery of three-dimensional perspective. While conical lenses of the type used in Galileo's telescope were different from the parabolic mirrors in the James Webb telescope, radio telescopes, or home satellite dishes, the basic science and math behind the gathering of a maximum amount of light slash photons, radio waves being wavelengths of light, and focusing it at a given focal point are much the same. Innovation followed the knowledge of illumination. The science of cones and angles and parabolas would lead humanity and artists to a revolutionary and transcendent revelation. They are all necessary to a simple, yet at least until the Renaissance, visual assumption. Artists and Greek mathematicians had sought it from the beginning and it was always there. Humanity would need to explore dynamic visual representations on cave walls, discover two-dimensional representation, and define space through geometry towards a foundational component of art. Coming up in Part 7, Chapter 2, Perspective. You're listening to A History of Light for the Artist. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. Please help support this program by sharing it and by clicking the subscribe button. 
Our theme song is by Dino Olovchich. Midnight Ride can be found by searching Dino Olovchich at SoundCloud. Mm-hmm.